Um, Matthew chapter 8, um, page 1033 in the Pew Bible. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through chapter 9, verse 8. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of Gadarnus, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a a paralytic lying, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sons are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. May God have blessing to the reading of his word. Well, amen. Praise the Lord for the singing of uh, the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. If you would take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. As you've heard the text read this morning, we'll continue our study in the gospel of Matthew. And uh, we deal with a topic this morning in these miracles that I think would hit home for us. My prayer for you has been that we would watch what Matthew is doing in the text of Scripture and that we would allow the Spirit to reveal in us what we need to do and how we need to respond to the authority of the King. Matthew is sharing with us about Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who has taken on flesh and become one of us that he might save us from our sins. And so Matthew is holding up for us that we might behold Christ and know who he is and beholding him and knowing who he is to be changed by the King. Jesus is presented to us at the very beginning as the promised Messiah, the son of Abraham, who has come to redeem the son of David, who has come to reign and sit on the throne of David forever. And he has come and announced his kingdom. He's proclaimed the kingdom of God. And now Matthew has turned in the section that we're studying to show us his teaching, his healing, 
and his proclamation of the gospel. So we're in the middle of that section where we saw the, the message of Christ and the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're seeing the ministry of Christ here in chapters 8 and 9. And I've told you there's a cycle that is seen in these two chapters of Jesus' ministry. We've seen three miracles and then we saw Jesus proclaiming the kingdom to disciples and his interaction with two would-be disciples last week. Today we're going to look at three more miracles. And after this there's another proclamation of the kingdom of God to his disciples and so we'll see that uh, next week my ambition was a little too heavy this week I thought that we would cover all the way down through chapter uh, verse 17 and there was no way that I could fit that in so we're going to do the the teaching of Jesus next week about discipleship again and then the final time in this series we'll see three more miracles and a summary of his ministry as we close out this very section. Last week we looked at Jesus' authority over physical illness as we saw the context of Jesus healing those who had uh, illnesses, whether it was the leprosy or uh, the, the, the Gentile servant needed healing or Peter's mother-in-law. We saw Jesus' power and authority over physical illness and we saw that as the context for Jesus to show us discipleship and faith and what that looks like for those who are living in the kingdom or who want to be in his kingdom. And so we saw the faith of one who had the uncleanness of leprosy to come and Jesus healed. We saw what Jesus said was outstanding faith of a Gentile, one who was unworthy of the king uh, as he would see him. And he came to Jesus and Jesus commended his faith and then healed his servant. And then we saw Jesus healing all that would come to him. And at the end of that, we saw the teaching of Jesus about discipleship where there were two would-be disciples that came to Jesus, one saying, I will follow you. And Jesus said, I don't even have a place to lay my head, confronting his very heart at where this scribe was in his unconditional commitment to Jesus. And then another said, Lord, I want to, but I've got another priority. Let me go and take care of something first. And so we said that Jesus was teaching us about discipleship that nothing must be allowed, nothing should be allowed, nothing can be allowed to take precedent over our commitment to follow the king. The question even in this section that we are coming into today, which is just a continuation of teaching on discipleship, is this, will you follow the king? Will you follow the king or will you continue to keep to live in the way that you have been living? Saw two examples of that faith last week. We saw two examples of people walking away, I believe, as Jesus confronted their heart. This week we'll also see some responses in these miracles. But these miracles move to even a deeper level for us. And so as you come to the text this morning and you consider with me these three miracles, I want to bring up what I believe that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is confronting in us in the text before us, and that is this, fear. Fear. I believe that the Bible teaches us that as God created us, He has created us as worshiping beings, that we at every moment, in every decision, in every word, in every action, we are living out worship. We are uh, uh, ascribing to something or someone in our hearts and in our lives worship at every moment. And I also believe that the Bible shows us at least three categories that reveals to us what we worship. 
You have heard me say from this pulpit many times that what you love, you worship. The Bible says that what we love most is what we worship, and that then controls our lives. And so we kind of get that one. The Bible also says that what we desire most is what we worship, and that controls us. We live in, um, as a result of what we desire most. Well, the Bible also gives us a third category that reveals our worship, and that is what we fear, what we fear. May I propose to you this morning that you are sitting in this place and it's not, the question this morning is not do you fear something or do you not? The question is what do you fear? And in our culture, we love to have this, this mindset that we don't fear anything. And so before you leave today and looking at these three miracles of Jesus, I hope that you and I will get a better grasp of fear and expose our hearts to the searching Spirit of God who through His Word will expose what is there and we will know and understand our own fears as the primary indication today of how we respond to the King. So, the question this morning is, what do you fear? Do you fear your circumstances or do you fear your creator. You see, a fear focused on our circumstances ends in terror, which reveals a trust and a faith in either ourselves or our circumstances to satisfy us in life. But a fear that is focused on the creator reveals an awe and a trust of the one that we were made to worship. And that trust changes the way that we live. And that, my friend, is demonstrated in our lives. This morning it's demonstrating this text in three different ways, in three different miracles. So I want you to look at the text with me and let's walk through these miracles and see what it is that God would want to teach us this morning. Beginning in verse 23 of chapter 8, we have three miracles that for many of you will be very familiar. So I just want to call your attention to them, maybe make some points about them, and then hopefully bring us to some really uh, um, practical application for our lives. So, verse 23, Jesus gets into the boat and his disciples follow him. Don't just read over that quickly. It is a transition statement from Matthew, but it is very important. It's picking us back up into this story so that the story didn't just end and it begins in verse 23. We're in the middle of what is going on. Matthew is teaching us about Jesus and his authority. And we saw in verse 18 that Jesus said... We need to get in a boat. The crowds were growing, and as he commanded for a boat to be found for them to get in and go to the other side, he has these conversations with two would-be disciples that I believe probably both go away disappointed because Jesus reveals what's in their heart. So, Jesus, we want to be your disciple, but Jesus confronts their hearts, and so I don't think that they end up following him. But whether they do or not, the, the point is that Jesus reveals that Many things will be allowed in your life and mine to take precedence over Christ, and we may not follow him. But here in verse 23, there are those that follow him. So notice the disciples, in contrast to ones that don't follow him, they actually followed him. And they followed him onto a boat into the Sea of Galilee where a great storm is going to occur. And so 
Note with me what we learn about this. The disciples follow him. They get in this boat and behold, look, there is a great storm that arises in the sea. The word for storm there is a bit unusual for the New Testament, certainly for Matthew. It, it literally could be the word for earthquake. And so what we're told here is this is not a normal storm. So I want to call your attention to the fact that the disciples that are on the boat with Jesus are fishermen. They are not unfamiliar with the Sea of Galilee. They've been here before. They've been in storms on the Sea of Galilee, no doubt, before. And yet this storm is unlike any other storm. I think there's language even further in this text that might indicate to us this storm has something supernatural going on in that I believe that this being the realm of Satan, he may actually be trying to do something opposing the disciples and or Jesus. As you'll see in the very next story, demons are active while Jesus is on the earth, very active. And so this could be just a normal great storm or it really according to the language could be something that is even more than just a great storm either way the disciples are in the boat they are afraid the boat look at verse 24 the end of it the boat is being swamped by the waves so this is no light time it's no well we'll get through this we'll be okay it is a major occurrence and the boat is being swamped by the waves now, I don't know if you've ever been on a boat that has been swamped by waves I have in 28 degree weather the water was 41 degrees, it was snowing, and waves are coming over a boat that sunk in the sound on the coast of North Carolina, and I'm with a couple of guys that are in a boat that's now on the bottom of the sound, and we're trying to get to the shore. I kind of get where these guys are. They're afraid for their lives. Jesus, on the other hand, completely opposite picture, he is asleep in the stern of the boat, Mark tells us, on a pillow, and the, the storm has not roused him. Now granted, he has been very busy healing, working, and so he's sleeping, and he's sleeping on a pillow, but they're about to die, and they can't understand how Jesus is asleep in the boat. And so, note this, not the point of the sermon, following Jesus does not mean there are no storms coming in your life. So get that? Following Jesus does not mean, oh, we're following him, so everything is going to be fine. Well, everything is going to be fine, but it doesn't mean that storms are not coming on this earth. So just note that. Now, they go to Jesus. They wake him up. They say three words again. Three words in the Greek. Verse 25. Lord, save, we perish. Now, they're pretty quick, all right? So they know what they want to get across. This is a dire time. There's no time for conversation. They say three words to Jesus, pretty much, get up and do something if you can. How can you be sleeping? We're about to die, all right? Uh, I don't know uh, how this ever came out in me. I'm not really a commanding person. I'm really kind of timid, and I don't uh, say anything outgoing or anything, but when the boat was going under that I was on, I'm told that I was commanding people what to do in this time. I, Wayne Meadows, many of you remember him, was here. He was on the front of the boat in a little house, and I just told him, jump off the boat. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, it's going under, get off the boat. And he could not see how he needed to be on a boat, but I didn't want him to be taken down with this boat. Get out of that house and get off this boat. And uh, so these guys are in a place where they're, going to die, and they're telling Jesus, here's what you need to do. Now, Jesus, note, has no worries. He's up there dreaming about whatever he wants to dream about because everything's under control. He's not worried, and they wake him, and he comes to them. And notice what he says. 
I don't know if this is the conversation I want to have with Jesus when I'm on a boat that is being swamped by the waves. Jesus says, why are you afraid? Doesn't matter. We're about to die. He wants to have a spiritual conversation with them. Oh, you of little faith. Why are you afraid? I want Jesus to do something. Jesus wants to pull out. This situation is revealing something in your heart. Do you know that the things that you're most afraid of in those moments in your life when life is as dire as it's ever going to be, those are the moments that reveal what is actually in our hearts. And Jesus is pulling this out for those guys. Before he does anything about it, he wants them to see that this reveals something in them. Their fear, which has gone to terror, has revealed their faith. In the same way, for you and I, we find ourselves in that moment, in the moment of dire need, when we are crying out, we need to understand what Jesus is saying here is that that is going to reveal things in our lives. You know, fear and faith have a unique relationship. Let me give you a truth about this passage before we move on. If you fear your circumstances more than you fear the one who is sovereign over your circumstances, your fear will crush your faith. If you fear your circumstances more than you fear the one who is sovereign over your circumstances, your fear will crush your faith. If, on the other hand, you fear the one who is sovereign over your circumstances more than your circumstances, your fear of God will result in awe and worship and your faith will increase. So I've often said to you in this pulpit, faith and fear have an inverse proportional relationship. Simply stated, as your fear increases, your faith decreases. As your faith increases, your fear decreases. And they are all predicated on the what you fear most. What you fear most. In other words, church, I want us to see this morning in these three stories, right here in this very story, that fear is founded deep in our hearts and it reveals our faith. In other words, it reveals what we trust to deliver real life for us. What do you hope in? You see, when we come out of this, it reveals their faith in one of two ways. It will reveal your faith in one of two ways. Number one, we are either afraid of our circumstances... By the way, whether they're real or imagined, or we are awed by our great king and our fear is really awe of him so that our circumstances are not what we focus on. Notice Jesus says in this passage, Oh, you of little faith. He said this before to us. In Matthew chapter 6, he said this very word as he was confronting his disciples on their worry. Now let me go back and just draw just a moment for you. Worry is nothing more than fear of what has not actually come to be reality. Here, what is actually reality is what they're fearing. Both worry and looking at your current circumstances reveal what you fear most. The disciples who had just made a commitment to follow Jesus into the boat on to the Sea of Galilee, quickly reveal their faith or lack thereof through their fear. And Jesus confronts what is revealed in this moment. Jesus' response to them is to say, this is revealing something about your heart. Now don't miss this. Then he turns 
This is why I think this could be more than just a normal storm. And he rebukes the wind and the sea. He rebukes them. The language there of rebuke is Jesus is telling them that what they're doing is wrong. And so I wonder, was there something demonic in this storm or going on in the storm? But either way, the storm, the earthquake at sea, the Bible said was great. When Jesus rebukes the wind and the sea, the Bible says that the calm that comes from Jesus' word is also great. Now don't miss this, my friend. Jesus, in this moment, is demonstrating the same authority that's attributed to God in Jonah. He's demonstrating the same authority that's attributed to our God in the Psalms. Jesus' authority and power is being shown to the disciples to show them, I am Yahweh. I am God. I am the one who speaks to the wind and the waves and they obey me. And what is their response now? Once they see his authority and power, verse 27, they marveled. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, very briefly, you've heard this preached, I'm sure, at some point. Let me just make this statement to you because I think that sometimes we read this and we want to apply it in the wrong way. This miracle is not a story about Jesus calming or stilling the storms of your life. That is not the application. You should bring everything to Jesus and all the storms. You go, here's what I want you to see Matthew is doing. Here's what he's doing. Jesus has the authority to speak and the wind stops. It's not that the barometric pressure changes and so over the next couple of hours the wind dies down. It is Jesus says peace and the wind stops where it is. It's not that the weather changes and over the next couple of hours the sea goes from swamping a boat to calm slick glass. It is that Jesus speaks and his authority, the natural world responds to his word and immediately the waves are gone. That is the king who confronts you and confronts me in our everyday life, in the reality of your life, in the troubles or the storms or wherever it is. It's not that he is speaking so that your storms will be calmed. It is that he has the authority to speak over nature and everything changes. Trust him. He has authority. Not, over, not only over illness last week, He has authority to speak to his own creation, to the natural world, and it obeys. The king has power over the natural world, unlike any that we've seen in anybody else save God. The correct response then to this is simply one of two things. The disciple responds with fear that leads to faith. Because the fear is looking at beholding a Savior who has this power, this authority, and says, I'm with Him. I trust Him. It doesn't matter what the winds and seas are doing anymore. I'm with Him. Fear that leads to faith. Or you might, as a non-believer, one who would reject Christ, who would not follow after the King, your fear then must lead to terror, be absolutely terrified at one that controls nature. 
fear. Where is it? Let's move. Second miracle beginning in verse 28. There are two men that he finds in the country of the, Gadar- uh, the Gadarenes. He goes to the other side. He gets out of this country of the Gadarenes. And there are two demon-possessed men meet him there coming out of the tombs. By the way, out of the tombs. Isn't that a great place for Satan and all of his demons to be? They are where death is because their death is imminent. And they have taken these two men and they have uh, possessed them in such a way. The end of verse 28. So that they are so fierce, so exceedingly violent, that no one could pass that way. Again, I want you to note, Matthew in this text is focusing a bit different than what Mark and Luke are going to focus on in this story. Uh, Mark and Luke, I believe, focus on one of these guys and how he is healed and he comes back and he becomes a great witness for the gospel to his own city. Matthew's not going to focus on that at all. He's going to focus on the response of the Gadarenes. And first, their response is they have such fear in Satan and his work and these two guys that, that they cannot even pass where these guys are roaming. And so, Immediately we see the fear of the Gadarenes, of these fierce demon-possessed men. And they come out to meet Jesus when he gets out of the boat. And so the Gadarenes are, are fearful of Satan and all that he's doing here. And Jesus is confronted then by the demon-possessed men as they come up to him. Now let me say just a word very quickly about demon possession. Two things. Don't make too much of Satan and his work. But on the other hand, don't make too little of it. Probably you are in one of these two boats. But the Bible has a very balanced view of spiritual warfare and demons and Satan and the demonic. And you and I need to have the Bible's view on it. You don't be so influenced by the Western world that you think, well, this is not just a, it's not, it's just a reality in ancient times. It's not really reality here. That's not so. There are demonic forces, the forces of evil, And darkness and the prince of the power of the air are active in our life. And if you want to ignore that, then they're active now. If you are not in spiritual warfare in your own life, then you probably have this view that you've made too little of it. On the other hand, if you see a demon under every wrong thing that happens to you, or every mistake that's ever made, or every word that's misspoken, and you see demonic there, then you're probably making too much of the spiritual uh, demonic forces in the world. So they're not just describing some mental illness that we would now know more about today. There is real demon possession here. And I want you to note that demons are real In our day, they're real. In this day, they're real. And I think that what we would see is the activity of demons seems to be to have climaxed when the Son of God was walking on the earth. The power of the enemy, though, is absolutely real today. And those who rebelled against God then, before the creation of this world, those who rebelled against God, they are active now, even in our world. So the demons, out of these demon-possessed men, they address Jesus in verse 29. They say, have you come here? Don't know where here is. Is it the country of uh, Gadara? Is it uh, the earth in general? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know that judgment is coming. They know that the Son of God is going to judge all And he's going to judge all, including Satan and the demons. And so what they don't get is the already not yet. Jesus has broken in to our time. He has taken on flesh and he speaks with authority to the demons as he's here in the flesh on the earth. And they say, it's not quite time yet, is it? They know that it's coming, but they're like, how did you get here before time? 
And so Jesus is showing them he has broken into human history and he has the power to judge them and to command them even now. And so Jesus has authority in the spiritual realm and he commands even the demons. And he says to them, be gone. They say, hey, there's some pigs over there. If you're going to cast us out, I think maybe better rendered, when you cast us out, would you let us go to the pigs? And so he gives them permission. He says, go, be gone. And so they are gone, and the men are freed. Don't miss that. The two men that were controlled, possessed by these demons, they're now freed to live for the glory of God. And the pigs have the demons, and they run off a hill and die. In our Western world, I think that we probably make too much about the 2,000 pigs. Mark tells us here, large, large herd, 2,000 pigs running off of a cliff and dying. But I want to make most of, and Mark or Matthew is making most of, the two men that are freed. And so, hold them up. Two men, freed from demon possession, 2,000 pigs, run off a cliff and die. And Matthew then focuses our attention on the response of the Gadarenes. Because the herdsmen go to town and they tell everybody all that happened, especially what happened to the two demon-possessed men. And the Gadarenes come out and they ask Jesus to leave. Isn't it ironic in this passage, just in passing, that the demons know who Jesus is and beg him for permission to take leave of him? And the Gadarenes see what Jesus does, and they beg him to leave. Matthew's making a point here. Confronted with the power of Jesus, seeing his power and authority over the demons, how are we going to respond? What you used to be afraid of is no longer a threat to you. But now you have a greater fear. And what's your greater fear? Economic loss, my finances. You see, they look at Jesus and they've had this economic loss before him with 2,000 pigs that have run over the hill. And they implore, request, beg Jesus, will you leave? Jesus' authority over the powers of darkness confronts the Gadarenes where they actually are. And the people respond with fear, fear of what they might lose, not fear of what Jesus might bring. You see, they all came to save, to see what Jesus had done. And when they hear... Their fear reveals their trust and they reject Jesus. Their trust is not in the Son of God who can have power over demons. Their trust is in what they can gain through their own work. They dwell on the economic loss and reject the one who could vanquish Satan. Where's your fear? What do you fear today? Would this reveal our fears. Jesus is the one who supernaturally cast out demons and has power not only over physical illness. He has power over the natural world and he has power over the spiritual world. Now if you thought all of that was grand and too grand and confronting you too much, hang on because Jesus is getting ready to be really in your space and make you uncomfortable. Look at what Matthew chapter 9 verse 1 says. They get back in the boat. They come across and he goes to his own city probably Capernaum. He's probably back in Peter's house, Peter and Andrew's house, where he does some healing. He's teaching or doing whatever he does there. And there are these group of men that bring a paralytic to him. Now, Mark and Luke tell us that uh, 
that these men actually pull apart the roof because they can't get in. It's so crowded. And they lower the man through the roof. And Jesus is confronted with a paralytic lying on a bed as he's teaching. And here he is. And the Bible says here for us in verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith. Now their faith is um, naturally read as the men who have brought him. When he saw their faith, he looks at the paralytic and says something astonishing to him. Take heart, be of courage, take courage my son, your sins are forgiven. Now I'm not sure that you and I get the weight of that phrase in our day. We can kind of get that Jesus has power over illness, that has been done, he has healed people, we get it. We kind of get that Jesus has power over nature. As incredible as that is, we know you have been taught and you know He's the Creator and He has power over the wind and the seas and He can speak and they stop. We know that Jesus has power over the demons. He's proven it to us in uh, the Word of God and seeing Him. And so we kind of get that. As, As awesome as that is and as much as that confronts you and says you must place your fear toward God, to all, to be in reverence and worship of Him, we get here and you need to know that if you are questioning whether Jesus is claiming to be God or not, this gives us no room to question at all. He now looks at someone and says, you are forgiven. Notice in the first words here what Jesus is saying to this man, you are freed from sin, you have nothing else to fear. He's still paralyzed. He's still lying on his bed in front of Jesus and he has nothing ever to fear. Why? Because the worst thing that could happen to any of us is that we die with our sins not forgiven. And Jesus does what only he can do to this man and says, your sins are forgiven. He has the authority to forgive sins. And there is astonishment around the room. The scribes start talking among themselves. This is exactly what happens in every church. There are little groups that start talking. There's this little group over here. And can you, what did he just say? Did, did I hear what he said right? Did he actually say he was forgiven? This man? And how could that be? Jesus, what's he claiming? He's claiming to be God. That's blasphemy. He can't do that. Yes, he can. He is God. And so they come back to Jesus and, and they're, they're grumbling among themselves. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts are his forces, why do you think evil thoughts? Why do you have evil in your hearts? Jesus is the one that knows the heart. He knows the hearts of the men that brought him. He knows the heart of the paralytic that's lying there. And he knows the heart of those who are grumbling and complaining. And they will not submit themselves to Jesus. And so he looks at them and he says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Rise and walk. Now, the obvious answer here for us is whichever is easier to do, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because there's no way to prove that. Right? There's no way that they can say, well, his sins aren't forgiven. Prove it. And so Jesus said, which is easier? But to show you that if I can do the lesser, then I certainly can do this. He says, he looks at the parallel and he says, get up. Take your bed. And go home. Now note what the text says, verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus publicly just said, 
I am God. And so that you will know it, sir, get up. Take your bed and go home. Look at verse 7. Excuse me, verse 8. He rose and got up, verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. You see, all three of these miracles have this in common. There is a fear that comes in to those that are experiencing the authority of our Savior. There's astonishment, and here there's fear. Jesus has the authority, and we see the fear that comes from this authority yet again. Some fear leads to terror. And what we're going to see, we sense it here, but it's going to happen even more so in the next couple of weeks, the next couple of examples. Terror leads to hostility toward God. Some of you are sitting in this place right now and your fear is displaying itself in your life because you're afraid of your circumstances. Some of them are real. Some of them are just figments of your imagination. And yet because you're controlled by the fear of circumstances, you have begun to question and are hostile even toward God. Terror of your circumstances will eventually lead to hostility toward God. But if you will look at the authority of our God over illness, over natural uh, disaster, over the, the natural world, over the spiritual world, and over your eternity, then you can take your entire life, circumstances and all, those that haven't happened, those that are happening right now, and you can lay them before our God and say, I trust you. And with bended knee and bowed head and a humbled heart, you just say, my king, my king. He's sovereign, he's good, and he has you in his hands. You see, fear that leads to terror will lead to hostility, but fear that leads to awe and worship Look at verse 8. Here's what it does. The crowd see, they're afraid, and they glorify. Do you know what the right response to seeing the authority of Jesus over illness, over the natural world, over the spiritual world, and to forgive your sins? you know what the right response to that is? Worship of our great God. Worship, glorifying the King. And so Matthew has shown us Jesus' authority, and the question this morning is, How will you respond to one with such authority? Will you continue to live life the way you've been living and have this fear of what might happen or what is happening? That will turn eventually to hostility toward God. Some of you are here and your your focus is on that and you're here because you think by being here you can somehow manipulate God and He'll do what you want and you'll eventually have control over God. Your trust is still in you. And it will turn eventually to terror and hostility. Or will you today with open hearts and open hands and bowed knee come before the Lord and say, My King, you are the ruler. You are sovereign. I worship you. As we close, I want to ask you, will you this morning respond to our Savior with the apathy of the Gadarenes who were 
already satisfied with their lives and didn't want it to change. With the anger of the scribes and their growing hostility toward Christ or with the awe of the disciples and those who saw him heal this paralytic and worship and glorify our King. 